Even though I don't know what I'll be uh, saying tonight, I do have a title. The title of this evening's talk is Against the Stream. The reason I chose this title is that uh, our practice, and especially those who have begun or made the attempt to really give your heart to the practice of being present, of being mindful, of being kind, of engaging in a uh, the willingness to stop causing yourself and others harm. Uh, to do this, engage or enter into this practice, goes against a... Um, what one of my teachers said, a 35 million year tradition of doing everything other than that. Because the, the force or the momentum of our lives, I think for most of us, has been about what's next, about tomorrow, about where I'm going, what I am becoming, or where I've been. All of the momentum of our actions, our thoughts, our words even, are referenced by the idea of someone called me going from the imagined past, passing through the present, on our way to somewhere else. So the entire momentum of our lives is a, is a narrative of becoming. The Buddha called this bhava, becoming. Being in the process of becoming. And what this habit of being in the continual process of becoming has caused in our minds is a sense that to be truly home, to be truly at peace, requires going somewhere else. That somehow to simply be here, to be here, the only place that any of us have ever been, really, but to be here in our habitual thinking is to, um, is to miss something. To be here is to, um, is to um, be bored, <laughs> to be um, uncertain, to be awkward, to be really here is a strange place. Does this relate to anything that any of you ever experience? This is crazy. This is madness. We are all both uh, both uh, figuratively and literally mentally ill. And the mental illness is the delusion that our happiness can be found, our peace and relief can be found anywhere else but here. But this is what our practice has been. We have practiced incessantly 
obsessing about what's next. So to stop, actually find relief, the only place that it can be found here and now, is, goes against the stream of our conditioning. So we use this expression of stream, these metaphors, but the practice of meditation reminds us that we are not really going anywhere. We are not either with the stream or against the stream. This is just a metaphor. What we realize when we practice that the beginning of this engaged, this engagement with our hearts and minds and our actions, it begins right here. And the path itself is simply staying here. Staying right here. Anything else is imagination. We've talked about that before. And the end of the path, the final destination, even though we use this word path, it just means that it's, there's a, we can move freely, that, we can, that this something has been cleared. So that I use path in a different way, less about going somewhere, much more about the freedom to be. But the end of that path is what? Here. Is finding our home in the present moment. And if I find home in the present moment, if I find a place of harmony and balance, compassion, goodwill, if I find that home in the present moment, then it's more than likely that uh, I will be uh, a little bit less contentious with you, with myself, with the world around me. I'll be, uh, I will be, hopefully, uh, for some reason the word ornament, I will be an ornament of life rather than, uh, than someone at odds with it. I will be a, uh, I just won't cause harm. I'm less likely to cause harm. But we use this metaphor of against a stream because of the conditioning. The conditioning has not really led us astray. It's only led us astray in our minds. So to decondition our minds it means to make that shift from being simply carried along by the stream of distress that plays through our mind as the, as the profound drama of the imagined me that's going from there, back there to, to over there somewhere. Again, it's all just a story. It's amazing how it just stops in a moment of, of mindful presence. Who are you? when you don't refer to the past, the future, or even the ideas of the present. Who are you? What are you? And what's, what is your experience when you don't consult your memory? I was just reflecting on that tonight. What is my experience when I'm just here? And the reason I was reflecting on that is because, along with perhaps many of you, I began my 
hundred day journey last week and I just I try to be mindful as much as I can but I just stoked it up a little bit more not so much in formal practice but in informal practice and I was shocked I was shocked at how much my mind inclined toward complaining shocked at how much my mind uh, fabricated the imagined me that needed to get to the imagined future to be okay. I was shocked to see that. But I was also very much gratified, very gratified to see the effect of mindful attention on what my mind was doing. And that's the beauty of giving my heart to practice, it doesn't mean that I stop having those 35 million year entrenched tendencies of mine. It means that I notice them. And that for at least that moment, I've stepped out of that stream of distress and I can be free. I've, I've entered the path. The path is open. And the more that I pay attention the more that I notice what my mind is doing, all that my mind is doing becomes the path. It becomes, as Trungpa Rinpoche, great Tibetan master, called the manure of Bodhi. All of the tendencies of my mind, when brought under the light of attention, become my path. So my path this week was, ah, this is the complaining mind. This is the wanting mind. This is the irritated, aversive mind. This is the impatient mind. Somebody was telling me today about their impatience. I was a poster child this last week for the impatience with my seven-year-old daughter who is very willful and, and seems to be in a phase where each day there's some little drama that... Um, that, uh, that she, I, I attribute this to her. Maybe it's me. But she stirs up... In order to slow things down and, and conform to what she wants to happen, and so consequently there is a little bit of a contentiousness that goes on, and I'm on a schedule. I'm on a schedule. And I notice that impatience arises and frustration. And so I got to... I'm, I'm, getting to see, as I do all the time, but in, in a little bit more intimate detail, because I've committed myself to using whatever is the meat of my life as the path. So to engage in this process of going against the stream, of coming out of the tangle of obliviousness and... Um, and unknowing to noticing, from being lost in the stream of my process to noticing it, I am inevitably, and you will be inevitably faced with the what the Buddha called uh, kilesa, or the, the defilements, the torments of the mind. Those things that when they go unnoticed, send us into a state of fixation, contraction, self-absorption, and a convincing view that the present is not a place I can find relief and that something has got to be different in order for me to be happy. 
and what starts out as a perhaps even as a mourning where you have committed and I'll just I'm speaking from about myself really but I'll say you the the big you when you've committed to organizing your life around uh, wise thought or wise intention the wise intention being as the Buddha recommended the orienting of our thoughts toward renunciation or simplicity contentment that's the renunciation part otherwise known as non-greed orienting our thoughts and our our, um, intentions toward non-hatred toward goodwill in other words, metta or compassion, and uh, orienting our thoughts and intentions toward non-delusion, which is really a continual appreciation that uh, whatever I do in my thoughts, in my words, or my actions, doesn't just affect me, but it affects all beings everywhere, but first and foremost, the people who have to live around me. And that's a, um, so I start the day with this wonderful intention and then I notice that my thoughts and intentions have somehow morphed into greed, hatred, and delusion. (laughs) And fortunately I'm noticing, I notice these and they become my path. They become something that I can use to... um, Awaken. What I do, uh, what I do when I'm when there is more unawareness is I use those moments to uh, to hurt myself and others. So I'm happy to notice, even to notice that I have fallen into unwise thoughts and unwise intentions. But I think it's useful because we all have the the 35 million year conditioning of moving along with a particular stream of habit, we can all benefit by noticing the common themes that tend to accompany unwise thought and intention. The common themes, the common defilements, the common torments that tend to be universal, that will drive all of us to a sense that there's something wrong with this moment, there's something wrong with me. What are those, uh, what are some of the common, uh, we'll call them states of mind or mental states or torments, what are the common mental states that uh, will keep us in a state of distress and dissatisfaction and uh, incline our lives toward um, unwise thought and intention. Greed is, that's one way of talking about it, but the way the Buddha spoke about it, he said there are five main states of mind that we tend to to be visited by that tend to run our lives and keep us from our, that that deepest wish to be well and happy, to be free of suffering. They are the desire, the, the mind that desires sense pleasures. That desire to have some kind of pleasure. And that desire to have some kind of pleasure 
Desire in itself, no big deal. A liking, a wanting. But desire, when it hardens, it turns into uh, craving, and craving turns into attachment. Attachment turns into identification, and pretty soon we are completely dependent on, uh, on objects of desire for our sense of well-being. And when we are uncomfortable, our mind will, in, this, in the tension of desire, it will generate, it will proliferate in a fantasy world of, of desires, of what I need and what I want to have in order to be happy. This is our cultural habit. Very strong cultural conditioning. Most of you who've sat here before know that I often refer to a, a character in the advertising world. And of course, the advertising world understands this wanting mind. And they actually cynically use it to keep us in a state of greed. Because the whole consumer machine needs to keep us greedy to keep going. It's just how it works. So in this particular character that has been created in the advertising world, his name is Spence. And Spence is described as um, someone who has put a new twist on an old philosophy. And his new twist on the old philosophy is to be uh, one with everything that sincere, deepest wish that we all have to be in a state of unity and oneness. He says, to be one with everything, you have to have one of everything. (laughs) And we all laugh at this. It's funny. But it's really not funny. If you watch, if you pay attention to your mind, it's not so funny. Until, of course, it's funny again once you've watched it, once you've noticed it enough. I don't know about you, but my mind, it depends on whatever I'm into at a particular time. My mind will just come up with, you know, I'd like to have that. And then it, that object starts to kind of build in my mind and my body starts to form around that desire. And I start to feel hungry. I start to feel a little bit deprived. Any of you ever feel that? Thank you. Hungry, deprived, and and then I'll often feel, because I'm hungry and deprived, I'll start to think, well, something's not right with my life. I mean, it can become quite global. Something's not right. What have I done wrong? I've just haven't, I haven't created the conditions to have everything I want. Any of you ever have that thought? This is pure delusion, and the, this is the effect of the wanting mind. How the wanting mind leads to bhava, leads to a state of becoming, leads to a state of perpetual dissatisfaction. And it's very innocent, because when we do actually gratify the wanting mind, and there are so many ways to do that, one of them is coming to a meditation class. <laughs> that's, to me, that's a, a different kind of desire altogether. That's more wholesome desire. It doesn't have much to do with making you, um, 
better than you are. It's about you rediscovering, as Thich Nhat Hanh puts it, when he says, you, who are the richest person on earth, who've been going around begging for a living, stop being the destitute child. Come home, reclaim your heritage. Having just said that, I've forgotten what I was talking about because <laughs> I'm enjoying my heritage again. I've come out of that dream of fear, of hope, of something's wrong, and I've rediscovered in the span of one moment silence, peace, enoughness. I can't find anything wrong now. I've lost my memory for a moment. The only way I knew there was something wrong is that I had a thought about myself or a memory. I'm the richest person on earth. One of the questions that, uh, that I do, maybe I spoke of this last week, but a question I ask myself, I think I did say it last week, whenever I fall into the effects of the, the wanting mind, because the objects really don't matter, it's just that state of, of waiting or state of becoming, I'll ask myself, is there anything truly missing now? Is there anything missing now? So the wanting mind, you can, I talk about it all the time, and you probably think about it all the time, but it's something that we can notice. We can use it as our path. The next time you feel that you're in a state of wanting, just if you've committed to being mindful, pay attention to that. This is the wanting mind. The flip side of that is the aversive mind. What about the aversive mind? The complaining mind, the irritated mind, the aggressive mind, the impatient mind. Any of you ever have that? Now, nobody's going to be, no one will stop having these states of mind. But there is such an enormous liberating process when we make the shift. And a few people today told me how they've noticed their impatience or noticed how easily they become impatient. And inwardly, I'm saying, this is fantastic. This is terrific. Because while we're acting out of that, while we are, what the Buddha would describe, identified with that, thinking of ourselves as the impatient one, we are irritating ourselves and everyone else. But when we notice, oh, this is impatience, this is irritation, this is hatred, this is homicidal impulse, even those most intense feelings become the manure. They, they bring us right to this vital present. They bring us right into the pain of these states. They bring us right into the potential rather than to strike out and be fixated on the object of our aversion or impatience. They become the manure of our compassion when we feel how painful it is to be in that state of, of impatience. And then we also are able to notice when we meet 
ill will, impatience, frustration, when we meet it with mindful attention, we're able to recognize that it is a a weather pattern. It's a changing condition. It is like a storm that comes and goes. It can't define us. It's a changing condition. And so there's no need to... Um, to uh, no need to take ownership of it. Just see it as a storm. This is the potential. Then you, don't, you won't mind when you feel impatient. You won't mind when you feel frustrated. You won't mind when you feel intense desire. Because you know that it will be, if you're feeling it, it will be tenderizing your heart. When you feel the burning, when you feel the pain of it, you know that it will be bringing you into this vital present. You know that you that that which is knowing this, that which is noticing, is unstuck from whatever that is. Do you know what I mean by that? To be able to notice something is to be unstuck. In that very instant, you have touched what the Buddha called lokutra sukha, unstuck from the world. The a sense of a sense of presence or well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening in your mind. Ah, this is ill will and aversion. Third, so we've got desire and aversion, restlessness and agitation and worry. That's all clumped into the restlessness and worry. Any of you ever have that? It's all mixed up with anxiety really hard to be with. And I know Tom Moon a few weeks ago gave a lovely presentation on working with anxiety. And I'll just clump in restlessness and worry. You can see by letting kind attention, heartful attention, meet that experience of anxiety. When it's met, not with rejection, not with, with added judgment, not with piling on, with compounding, anxious about being anxious about being anxious or worried about being worried. When it's met with heartful attention, it, uh, we soften. We, it opens up our heart of compassion. It opens up, uh, it also reveals itself as a changing condition. These will all be tendencies of mind that especially become lit up or highlighted when we begin to go against the stream of our habitual conditioning, start to wake up to where we are, wake up to what we are, wake up to this vital unfolding present. We will be met with these kinds of states, desire, aversion, restlessness. We can begin to have a little space around worry and know that know its futility. You can see how worry works. When you don't notice that, that there's worry, there's a tendency to there's a tendency to believe that our worrying has some kind of usefulness. Have any of you? It's kind of convincing. I've got to worry about this, otherwise my life is going to fall apart. Well, as our wonderful ecstatic poet Hafiz puts it in his poem called Find a Better Job, he says, now that all your worry has proved to be such an unlucrative business, why not find a better job? Clearly, the worrying mind uh, is just a 
it's like a brain um, it's like the brain being caught in on with a it's got a it's like a scratch in the brain it is caught in a in a loop that repeats itself over and over and over and it a lot of its momentum comes from being disembodied from losing contact with this vital present and a lot of our anxiety is arises because of we've lost our um, emotional articulation, ability just to feel what's going on. And because we have a difficult time feeling what's going on through the body, the pressure of those unfelt feelings tend to uh, express themselves, discharge as as discursive thinking, what the Buddha called papancha, or proliferation, or complication, which further uh, creates a sense of disembodiment, which further gives rise to our body calling out, crying out for attention. And the way that it cries out for attention is we feel really anxious. One way to look at it. So as soon as you can, during the course of your 100-day practice or whatever practice you're doing, the sooner you can put your mind in your body, your body in your mind, under the light of full attention, uh, it will protect you a lot from worry. So right here even, put your mind in your body. Know what's going on in your heart right now. Just sense what that is, what the mood is, what the state of your body is, what the state of your thoughts are. So you can do one of those quickies right now. I don't want to talk too much about the, the fourth mental state, although I notice how much that I've been experiencing this. And I think it's a habit. And it's partly the fruit of my lifestyle. And my lifestyle, I would say, is a bit on the, um, the busy side. Any of you busy? Any of you identify yourself as busy? Well, you'll like, you'll like this passage. From Amy Krauss Rosenthal. Indulge me, those who, or please forgive me, those who've heard this many times. Did I read it last week? Thank you. <laughs> How have you been? Busy. How's work? Busy. How was your week? Good. Busy. You name the question. Busy is the answer. Yes, yes, I know we're all terribly busy, doing terribly important things. But I think more often than not, busy is simply the most acceptable knee-jerk response. Certainly there are more interesting, more original, more accurate ways to answer the question, how are you? I'm hungry for a burrito. I'm envious of my best friend. I'm frustrated by everything that's broken in my home. I'm itchy. Yet, busy stands alone as the easiest way of summarizing all that you do and all that you are. I'm busy is the short way of saying, implying, my time is filled, my phone does not stop ringing, and you, therefore, should think well of me. Have people always been this busy? Did cavemen think they were busy too? This week is crazy. I've got about ten caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? 
I have a hunch that there is a direct correlation between the advent of coffee bars and the increase of busyness. Look at us. We're pros now at hailing cabs, making Xeroxes, carpooling, performing with a surgery with a to-go cup in hand. We're skittering about like hyperactive gerbils, high not just on caffeine, but on caffeine's luscious byproduct, productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, accomplishing, crossing off. As kids, our stock answered almost every question. What did you do at school today? What's new was nothing. In our country's history, there have been exactly seven kids who responded with a statement other than nothing. (laughs) And then, somewhere on the way to adulthood, we each took a 180-degree turn. We cashed in our nothing for busy. I'm starting to think that like youth, the word nothing is wasted on the young. Maybe we should try introducing it into our grown-up vernacular. Nothing, I say it a few times, and I can feel myself becoming more quiet, decaffeinated, zenish. Nothing. Now I'm picturing emptiness, a white blanket, a couple of ducks gliding on a still pond, nothing, nothing, nothing. How did we get so far away from it? So busy, busy is a chronic identity. And I think one of its, one of the residues of that is that we are chronically tired. And I've noticed that I tend to be, I don't want to admit it, but I'm busy. And I don't know if I'm tired, I don't think I'm tired, but I do say I'm tired a lot. And I think that that I'm tired is more of a mental state. It's more of a kind of weariness. It's a more of, it may be my version of the residue of, of, um, of busyness. But what we can do in our practice is we can notice what we're saying. What, what are we saying and what, how are we feeling? Are you tired a lot? Notice whether that is a mental state that is just a habit of just, is it a, a kind of complaint? Or is it, a, is it just weariness? Is it sleepiness? What is it? Pay attention to it. Let it be your path. Let it be something that, just, that doesn't just blow over your head. Listen to it. Pay attention to it. Sometimes when you pay attention to it, it will simply lift. It was just a mental state, a habit. Sometimes it will be the reminder that you're that you are in some way or your life is in some way out of balance. You may need more rest, but you may also need to stop saying, I'm tired all the time. That's what I realized. I was making myself tired. This is real confess my delusions night. (laughs) It's fun though. It's, it's, It's really, it's just how it is. So that's the easy one to talk about hard one to deal with our busyness because who are you without being busy? It really threatens sometimes the very, the very uh, of course, quicksand identity, but it threatens our identity and we'd rather be a busy somebody than a, than a um, quicksand nobody. You agree? But actually letting yourself feel Nobody, you find the real ground. 
you find the ground of, of emptiness. You find that, that experience, not just the idea of, but that experience of, of Zen, of suchness. You are the Tathagata, you're the one, you are the awakened one. And why don't you know that? Because you're, you're too busy to notice. So be the Tathagata, be the Buddha. Now that was, again, the, what I consider one of the easier ones to talk about, the more painful one to talk about. Not painful to talk about, the painful one to deal with. The, perhaps the most undermining of any of the mental states and one that is sure to arise as you begin to swim against the stream and commit yourself to a hundred days of practice. Maybe the, the loudest one that goes unnoticed is the mental state of doubt. Uncertainty, confusion. But in this case, doubt about whether you can do it, doubt about yourself, doubt about the teachings, doubt about the practice. If doubt takes hold and goes unnoticed, it will proliferate into a narrative about uh, the inadequacy of you and everything else and everyone else. And it will it will, that, whatever narrative tends to go with doubt, tends to leave the residue, the physical residue, of a complete dissipation of our determination, of our strength, of our confidence, of our faith, of all the necessary ground for, to be able to practice. It needs determination, it needs persistence, it needs willingness. Doubt undermines that. Yet, doubt is just a mental state, another weather front, another changing condition. It is something that we can start to pay attention to. Notice what your thinking is. This thinking, doubt is, especially the kind of doubt I'm referring to now is skeptical doubt. This is a form of unwise thought. It's delusion. It's creating a version of you that doesn't exist. The one who can't get it. It's creating a version of everyone, who, uh, of someone else or something else that's just a projection onto that other. As, uh, it's just all mind-made. It's easy to say it's mind-made, but when we actually deal with doubt, we see the way how it affects our energy system, how it affects our vitality. And so it's a little, it's hard to be with doubt and its effects. Yet, the moment, and I'll challenge you, the moment you make that shift from being caught in some story of doubt about yourself, your life, whatever you're doing, to noticing, oh, this is doubt. Feeling how it manifests in your body. See what happens when you have that magical mixture of doubt and awareness, kind awareness. See what happens. That doubt cannot sustain itself in the light of attention, in the light of kindness. Doubt will reveal itself as just a series of thoughts and a lot of crummy feelings in the body. Not me, not mine, impermanent, empty. So please, make a list for this next hundred days or the, the rest of your life Make a list, put it on your refrigerator. This is the wanting mind. This is the aversive mind. This is the restless and worried mind. 
This is the slothful mind, or the sleepy mind, the dull mind. This is the doubting mind. So these are the five main mental states. If you can begin to notice those, it will go a long way toward allowing you to fulfill the intention of having uh, wise, um, wise thoughts and wise intentions. You will begin, you'll get a little less caught up in having your intentions and your thoughts so much oriented toward what's next, what you can get, what you can become. Rather, uh, your intentions can start being oriented toward what you can offer, how you can love, how you can care. Uh, Managing, clarifying the hindrances is really important and entering the stream of this path. Yes. You can you can say it again. You can name the ice cream desire mind, coffee slothful mind, and you got one for the other ones. Chamomile tea for restless and agitated. <laughs> uh, well, we'll have to think about that, but thank you. So all of this needs loving attention. Please. Yeah, we. I didn't take... Sorry, I talked the whole time, but go ahead. Yeah, we launched a 100-day practice period last week, and there's now a Facebook page. So you can go to our website at missiondharma.org, and you can find out about that. And... Uh, so I don't know. I, I didn't want to just exclusively make this the 100-day practice period talk tonight because I know there are people who are not engaged in that. But uh, I hope all of you decide, if you didn't start last week, to start tonight. And let's just uh, do a little 100th monkey thing and get the whole world awake and uh, swimming against the stream of the hindrances rather than just acting them out all the time. Please, Simone. Dr. Martin Luther King, who swam against the stream. That sounds, that rhymes. But, but thank you so much for bringing him into the room. And be, be your own version of Martin, Dr. Martin Luther King, please. Yes. Yeah, I don't think that we can stop the waves. That's not the point, really, of practice. It's really to, is to find our composure, even when the, even when the 
habits are just playing out. It's a little shocking when we see how much conditioning just happens in spite of our, our will and our wish. And, and part, of our, part of the understanding that increases as we practice is things are just happening. But there, we do have, by meeting it with attention, that our relationship to that changes where there's a little less stickiness, but it's not so much about stopping the waves, but, but seeing how they, they come and go by themselves. And so there's, and so then there's, le- if you see the way it happens all by itself, then there's less judgment about it. There's less, there's less piling on when you notice that you've, you've um, somehow fallen into, into some kind of reactive pattern. It's just inevitable. So be very kind, merciful. You're, we're all very conditioned. It started way before you were born. <laughs> Pleasure. We do have to stop for the evening. Um, yeah, just in the, in the f- final um, stretches, I just want to remind you how important it is for us to, whether you do this 100 days or not, it's so important to, to stop. So I want to end tonight at least this, the, this part with one of my favorite Pablo Neruda poems. Every, a lot of people's favorites about stopping. Now we will count to 12 and we will all keep still. For once on the face of the earth, let's not speak any language. Let's stop for a second and not move our arms so much. It would be an exotic moment, without rush, without engines. We would all be together in a sudden strangeness. If we were not so single-minded about keeping our lives moving and for once could do nothing, perhaps a huge silence might interrupt the sadness of never understanding ourselves and of threatening ourselves with death. Perhaps the earth can teach us as when everything seems dead in winter and later proves to be alive. Now I'll count to 12, and you keep quiet, and I will go. So may our quietness be the cause of quietness in all beings. May anything of our practice that is beneficial, good, any fruits, any merit, any blessings that arise from our life and our practice, may it all be shared freely with all beings everywhere and shared with a deep wish that all beings can have happiness and peace in their lives and the causes of happiness and peace increasing every day. that all beings can be free of suffering and the causes of suffering, that all beings can recognize the sacred happiness that's without sorrow here and now and not look for anything but this anywhere else. And a deep wish that all beings can make that shift from being caught in the stream of events to meeting the stream of events with equanimity, less grasping, less aversion, to a wise relationship with things as they are. May all beings be free.
and live with ease. May our practice be dedicated to the welfare and benefit of all beings. So thanks for your presence, your words, your attention, all that. Just a reminder of our room rental at $150 a week. Also, if you have any inclination to, um, to support the room rental, there are a few options of doing it. Cash in the basket, of course, is wonderful. But also, if you make a check payable to the Golden Gate or whatever church this is, St. John the Evangelist Episcopal Church, it is a tax-deductible donation. So thanks in advance for any support for the room rental. And also, any teaching that's offered here by me or anyone else is offered on what's called a Donna basis, offered as my practice of generosity, and the invitation is put out. So if you feel to practice your form of generosity in the form of support, the basket is there. And this is a tradition that goes back 2,500 years. The teachings are given freely, so I'd like to keep that alive. So please practice generosity if you like, and then I can keep practicing generosity if I like. Thank you. Please help um, put the room back in its shape. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.